Hi, I'm Peyton Manning, and I'm partnering with the American Red Cross this year to tackle blood shortages. Giving blood's important because every two seconds, someone actually needs blood, and unfortunately, only like 3% of the U.S. population donates. So we have to step up to give and to make sure there's plenty of blood available for those in need. Visit redcrossblood.org to get in the game and make an appointment to give. Hi, I'm your host, Mark Stenson. In addition to these podcast interviews, I facilitate patient-doctor listening research known as Innovate Groups. These panels have four patients and four doctors and provide an opportunity to observe and improve the interactions that lie at the heart of effective health care. I've created an ebook on this Innovate Group method, and I'd like to offer you a download it includes real-life case studies to underscore the power of better patient-doctor listening. So visit biosciencebridge.com to download your ebook, Innovate Group Revolutions. Now, before I welcome today's guest, here's a familiar voice on an important health topic. Welcome to The Patient Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. Featuring interviews with healthcare leaders and patient advocates, Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends and colleagues, to our podcast, The Patients Speak, where we combine the scientific and business innovation of healthcare with the patient voice to make sure we're doing what we can to accelerate the patient's journey. And today we're going to tackle a complex topic of mental health. It's a very diverse topic, a lot of angles, a lot of challenges, even in defining mental health. It's a very broad, but we're, we're going to take on what we can because it is so critical. And we're going to have a panel discussion with three people who are involved day to day. I almost said the word expert, but I avoided it, not because they lack expertise, but because this is not an ivory tower department chair university kind of discussion. This is going to be about people who are practicing and supporting mental health every day. So I'd like to welcome to the show Maggie Hallett, Jess Maitri, and Wayne Brown. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Yes. Thank you. Maggie Hallett is in Columbus, Ohio. She's Senior Director of Workplace Health and Education at the Mental Health America of Ohio, a private nonprofit organization. Maggie, what are some of the key responsibilities you're working with these days? At MHA Ohio, we are the Ohio affiliate of Mental Health America, which is one of the longest running mental health advocacy organizations in the U.S. My job at MHA, while I am a licensed professional counselor, what I do mostly day to day is I oversee our workplace health department in which we work with organizations on how to create healthy work cultures, particularly those who are client serving I also oversee our peer recovery supporters program where we train peers with lived experience on how to support others going through it. And I oversee our mental health first aid training program, which is essentially the mental health version of regular first aid. It's an eight hour certification program, how to recognize mental health crises or situations and know the first steps and how to handle it. Very good. Even the definition of the word workplace has changed a lot in the last few years, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's been a hot topic for sure. We, we don't just mean the office or the factory or the school, do we? 
Yeah, as we see good. fireplaces in the background right now. <laughs> That's right. And, and that we're on Zoom and we all have our uh, home office in the background. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very good. Welcome to the panel. Thank you. Uh, my, my other guest here is uh, Jessica Maitri. She is a licensed clinical social worker in Boise, Idaho. She's created what's called the Yothera Method. And she not only works with clients uh, directly in their own counseling uh, setting, but also helps teach and train practitioners. Uh, Jess, how, how's that going, uh, providing therapy to therapists? <laughs> how's it going? I love it. I think that's like actually a very needed and overlooked aspect of our profession is to continue to always be learning and be a client yourself continually and always be doing your work. It's so easy to just do the next training and get all the certifications. And it's not really embodying being a human, which is my jam. I like helping therapists maintain their humanity. And what is your sense of the satisfaction uh, in the work? The practitioners, are, are they feeling satisfied that they're getting the results they want, that it's a meaningful job? I just think mm. about the their point of view. Who I tend to work with are therapists that are not thriving in the way that they would like to be. And it is mostly because their work in private practice or an agency is not soul fulfilling. It's not actually giving them the life force that they're desiring and the creativity that they're wanting and the freedom to explore parts of themselves. So I would say, to answer your question, they're not thriving very mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. And welcome to the panel. Thanks. My, my third guest is Wayne Brown, also a licensed clinical social worker in Buffalo, New York. And you recently started a new clinic, Wayne, Willow Grove Counseling. And you also teach at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. From your point of view in starting this practice, what patient need did you feel like you were needing to fill? Mark, I think that's a good question. Personally, my area of specialty leans more towards trauma. I work a lot with adolescents, especially as it relates to self-harm, suicidal ideations. I work a lot within the LGBT community. I do some adult work as well, but again, gravitating more towards people who do have high-risk, traumatic areas of counseling necessary. The reason that I wanted to open this practice is because my area of interest is pretty specific, and there are other therapists in the area who have a far more diverse background than I can simply practice in, number one. And number two, the need for in-person counseling is still essential for many people. While we address the natural tendency toward Zoom since 2020, I do have many patients who absolutely cannot function in a telehealth atmosphere, and we need therapists to be able to have a space to meet with the clients as they need it, mm -hmm. meet them where they're at as we teach our students. Yes. Congratulations on the uh, opening of the practice. I know it's going to fill a big need. And listeners, it's been my pleasure to know each of my guests uh, personally and professionally. 
And so, uh, again, this is not a random panel where I uh, looked up in a phone book and said, who are three people I could ask to a podcast? I really think that this is a panel that uh, has the education, but also the emotional intelligence and the personal commitment to mental health that I think you're going to benefit from our uh, dialogue here. So, Maggie, maybe I could start with you on, on a bird's eye view of patient insights in the mental health field, Wayne just talked about, and we, we talked about the office, the telehealth session, the workplace, again, a patchwork quilt of a lot of different settings, and you work with a lot of Medicaid patients. What's working? But then also, what are some of the challenges that you see on a day-to-day basis? Ooh, that's a big one. What's working? I think as a profession, we are learning a lot more about how trauma impacts us and our mental health in so many ways. And with that knowledge has come better treatment modalities and understanding about how trauma leads to a variety of other diagnoses. So we, as a profession, continue to learn and grow and understand the the humanness of people as Jess was saying, what's working when it comes to treatment is what we've seen from 2020 and beyond is that we've had to become more nimble. And so the meeting people where they are is truly happening more because we do work with people who may have limited access to transportation, who may have limited access to the internet. We have to find ways to reach them. And so For some of them, Zoom might not be an option, but the bus is, and they can get to their appointment. For others, limited mobility, whatever types of anxieties might exist, it makes somebody might not want to leave to go to a therapy appointment. Zoom is a fantastic option. The fact that now we've realized that there's not a one way to deliver mental health services, that's been a silver lining. Now we're just trying to figure out how each of these works best. I think we're in the settling phases now and moving forward, how do we utilize them to the best of our abilities? Mm -hmm. And Jess, how have you and some of your colleagues seen these different channel or mediums to speak to patients? I am all on Zoom now and it didn't used to be that way for me, but I have and my colleagues too. Um, there's there used to you guys can probably relate to this. There used to be this stigma around Zoom. Oh, you can't do powerful work on that. You it's only in person. It's only the way to have better sessions. And I have to say, I feel my work has improved since going on Zoom only because I'm a highly empathic person and I can create very powerful containers on a Zoom call. I do not have to be in person with them. And in fact, having people in their own space is I feel powerful because they're already in the place that the problems happen. (laughs) So it's, they're not compartmentalizing therapy as much. Like I go to this office and I do this thing, but then when I leave, everything's the same. It's be, I've actually found it to be really powerful. I like to like break that stigma down that you have to be in person for it to be powerful. I found the opposite to be true for myself. Mm -hmm. Wayne, how do you address this? Everything's fine in my office. And then I have to go back to the real world. It's incredibly real, especially when I'm working with an individual whose primary trauma is also someone they are living with. That's a factor. 
it's hard to say that there is a best place to do therapy. I like to say it's the cook more than the kitchen. And when I have my time with my clients, those who do come to the office, I really go out of my way to make sure that it is as comfortable a place to be for creature comfort. So it feels like a family room because maybe being in their home isn't a safe place for them to do therapy. Maybe discussing sensitive topics with their family member a room away one of my concerns of Zoom is, especially with working with a younger population, I don't know who's sitting right off camera. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I've worked with adolescents whose parents do not allow them to be in person. And I have to pay very close attention to how often my client is looking immediately off camera to know whether or not there is someone else in the room. Yeah, that's a very practical consideration. I can see that. We've been talking about some approaches and some innovations and new solutions, and uh, certainly technology is one of them. But what, what about techniques and methods? Uh, I think about, and I'm not trying to denigrate talk therapy, but it, it did get a cliche of how does that make you feel and that sort of thing, you know, that it's not really progressing uh, very fast. And some people are in this day and age, of course, I, I went to therapy and I didn't get better. How many times did you go and what did you do? <laughs> but uh, Jess, I, thinking about your own private practice, you try to integrate body, mind, spirit and together, as you mentioned, with a holistic approach. How do patients receive this? That's talk plus. <laughs> I haven't had one person yet decline it. And usually when somebody's coming for therapy, I, that's one of the first things I tell them is I work in a very embodied, intuitive way. And I can teach you how to be into everyone's intuitive, but helping them understand how to be intuitive with their own body. Every single person so far has said, yes, I've been looking for that. That's actually what I'd like because I've been doing talk therapy for years and I'm still doing the same thing. And so I found that even if they're not necessarily like a yoga person or a spiritual person, people are really wanting more non-traditional approaches to this mental health thing. Because mental health, even just the word is like, oh, we're just working with the mind. But the whole system, a bottom-up approach is really being received well. And Maggie, you have a different uh, lens that you're looking at this from, uh, both organizationally and with uh, corporate, do the companies realize that things are different and uh, that we need to be more innovative in our approaches? They're starting to. We spend a lot of time educating about how, like therapists, supervisors need to look at their employees as whole people. You are not leaving your stresses at the door when you walk in and that's a really unrealistic approach. And particularly younger generations are expecting it out of their employers. They're expecting to be viewed as an entire person. So we've been doing a lot of educating on what mental health challenges may show up like in the workplace. The thing that makes it hard in a workplace is that many of the symptoms of mental health disorders are behavioral. And so that's why it's so stigmatized and judged. And so if somebody is missing work, depression is the number one cause for 
short-term disability in the United States. It's billions of dollars that we're losing. And nobody wants to say that's why they're missing work. I think it's 70% of people lie about the why. And we're just doing our best to try to help companies see and supervisors understand that if productivity is suffering, if somebody is acting different than what they normally do, which is usually our, if you know nothing else, to, to understand that there might be something going on psychologically, it's just a pretty significant change from their norm. And if you see that at work, instead of jumping to some sort of conclusion about how they are as an employee, consider maybe digging a little deeper or, or giving a little more grace. Mm-hmm. And then we just talk about how to support employees through something like that without supervisors don't aren't expected to be therapists, but they are expected to not make a problem worse. And not say because they called in sick three times that they must be lazy or, you know, something. Right. And, And the remote workplace has to give this an even greater challenge. I don't really know. I'm sitting here looking at all three of you. Besides Wayne, your example of looking off camera, I really, it's hard to say. What's your mood? What's going on? Unless you're agitated, I wouldn't know the difference. Yeah. We guide people to have very specific conversations about their wellness and that it requires intentional questions and check-ins and that you, if, if it is fully remote, you may need to do more one-on-one types of meetings than you would. You just don't happen to be walking past somebody all the time and seeing their affect in person. So it has to be a lot more planned. Yes. If you don't mind, Mark, I do want to talk uh, about the body language thing. Good. (laughs) Because one of the things that I talk with my students about that's very important to me as a clinician, as well as for upcoming clinicians to understand, is the thing that is far more important to me than the words my clients say is what they're not saying. In my office and my Zoom sessions, I rely heavily on reading what you're not saying. I'm looking at when you move, why you move. I'm looking at where are your hands, what are they doing? I'm looking at how often or how long do you usually pause on a question versus how long you pause on this question? And what is that telling me? If you look off to the left for an extended length of time, I will ask my clients, I'm sorry, where did you just go there? And rarely do I not get an answer. So I like to teach my students how to notice when to check in with a client and how to check in a way that's non-threatening, that's safe, and build the relationship with them build the ability to communicate that they can be honest and just say, I'm fine. Everything's fine. The more they trust us, the more they'll open up when they do go to another place emotionally, even if it's for a split second. Very good. That's helpful. And Wayne, your background includes uh, patient advocacy, really teaching and empowering patients to be more involved and take a more active role uh, in their care. From the mental health perspective, are you seeing patients, I'll say, want to be involved? In other words, is it an active 
Or do you still see this passive, I went to therapy, they need to make me better? So as far as my work with individuals and advocating, Mark, I do love a cause. And with the clients who I work with, I do believe that it is incredibly important to give people an action item. Usually it's pointing out the action item that they want to work on and they just might not be seeing it, that it's one or two pages beneath the surface. And so therefore it's like being on page three on Google. It may as well not exist. (laughs) So I work with them on trying to see, hey, you mentioned this issue to me three times today. What is something that you can do this week towards managing that? I had a conversation earlier this week with regards to current events as they are always heated. And I was talking with a professional about how do I help my people manage their emotions in regard to this major news issue? And one of the things that I talked to them about was very basic action items that they can take that you don't need to create an entire advocacy group around. And that's simple things. It's turning off social media. It's turning off our favorite television echo chamber and going to find an organization in our community where we can sit with people who maybe need our help. Maybe it's making a sandwich. Maybe it's just sitting and listening to their story and being present with another human being. This is how we build oxytocin. This is how we build connectedness. And when we get into this funk of making our world smaller and smaller, Eventually, our world is the size of our couch, and the problems seem insurmountable. Mm -hmm. So I try and work with people on getting off the couch or getting out of their safe space and doing just the next small thing that they can manage, because the next small thing that they can manage will lead to a slightly bigger thing the next time. And just to pick up on that, I think about the hundreds of hours of market research I've been in with patients with gosh knows how many conditions and diseases. And they've all said, I just wanted somebody to hear me. I just wanted the doctor to listen. Do you feel like the colleagues in your circle and that you work with are available and open to the patients? Open to how they really seeing them as a whole? Yeah. To say... Obviously, the profession is one that has to listen, but Mm -hmm. would they walk out and if we were interviewing them in the parking lot and we said, did you feel heard? Do you really get the sense that the profession is listening better with the tools, body language being one that Wayne mentioned, but all the tools that are available to listen to patients, are we listening? Oh, what a great question. That's so good. The... I can speak for who I work with, the clients that are therapists that I work with are, I think most therapists are highly intuitive, like empathic people by nature. And I do feel like we are natural listeners, most of us. So I do feel like 
for the most part, clients leave feeling heard and seen, even if they're using just, I say, just talk therapy. Mm -hmm. I do feel like that because we feel like most of us are naturals at just seeing people, making people feel safe. It's just kind of, yeah. Yes. So can I I jump in on that? uh, Yeah. Thank you. So I think the hardest part, and I, I will try not to be too soapboxy about this, but is so much when it comes to community-based mental health, it's productivity driven. And so mm-hmm. when it is about meeting numbers, so you can get the highest Medicaid reimbursements possible to keep your doors open, it makes sense on its face because you need these services and to keep them running, you need to be billable. But when it becomes more about how many people you serve versus how well you serve them, then the system is broken and people get burnout because there's, it it should not be a case where you have eight or nine clients back to back every day. I talk to case managers who have 90 people on their caseload. How can you know 90 people to the extent that you're supposed to, right? And so then it causes these people to burn out. Their secondary trauma is so real. When you're hearing hard stories day in and day out, and you don't have a minute to put that anywhere, which is why what Jess is doing is so important because when therapists burn out, they tend to leave and continuity of care is vital when it comes Mm -hmm. to mental health. Building trust is one of the most important parts of the therapeutic relationship. And if you have a new therapist or case manager every three to six months, how does that ever happen? So the system is broken. <laughs> the system I, is broken. I'd like to add on to that because one of my last experiences in agency, Maggie, which is why I'm no longer an agency, I had a caseload of 135 people. And it was not unusual when I was working during my lunch that I would look at who I was scheduled to see next. And I would say, oh, look, they put a new person on my schedule. And I would open up their page and I would look at who did the last session note. And it was me. Mm. Yeah, to your point, I didn't know my clients. And frequently when I was in that agency, which was a CCBHC, I would spend the first 10 minutes of session just listening for context cues as to who the heck is this person? Because I don't want to be like, hey, I don't remember you. That's not exactly trauma-informed. But I honestly have no idea who this person is in front of me. Parenthetically, this company who I did work for has since had crisis in maintaining employment and they have even lower staff numbers and as because they're community-based health if you call for an appointment you're required to be seen within 24 to 48 hours but there's no requirement on second appointment yeah there's some reality there just what coming back around then what are your thoughts Well, just your question was, are they leaving feeling hurt or clients leaving feeling hurt? And 
even though yes, therapists are burned out and I have been that therapist before. I think the reason that I personally burned out is because I would give all of myself Mm -hmm. in every session and they did leave feeling heard. And it was because we show up. So I feel like if you really are in this profession, you might get burned out and start hardening, but before that you're like giving everything you're, you truly care. And so they do leave with a piece of you if you don't have mm-hmm. good boundaries. And I don't know, I was just circling back around to that. I don't think many of us can halfway do therapy. I think most of us, that's almost impossible. I can't be like, oh, you're, you're sliding scale or pro bono. So you're going to get 10% of me. No, I do the same therapy for whoever's in front of me. Mm. Yeah, I can see that uh, commitment of the profession and, and individuals. Thinking about then, as we round the corner and look towards the future, in the context of the title of this podcast, The Patients Speak, we, we've heard what patients need. We, we heard what uh, certainly the professionals need. But how do we bring that up? We all need more. We need better service to the patients. We need better care and feeding and management and uh, love to the professionals. But what, what is needed? to elevate mental health practices? My answer is going to seem really simple, but it's really not. I think what's lacking in the therapeutic process is joy. It's more joy. It's actually bringing, and joy for not just the therapist doing it, but the process itself and helping, no matter what the person's been through, how traumatic the, the situation is, helping them realize that they can still access joy. I feel like that's missing. We're so problem focused and we've been taught to be problem focused and without bypassing that, how can we also insert more of where we're going? And Maggie, what have you seen that workplaces and organizations need to elevate? I think when you prioritize your employee's health, then you're prioritizing your client's health and you, that all of the analogies of put your mask on first and you can't pour from an empty cup and all those things. It's true. They're true. And so when you create an environment in which people can actually take care of themselves and taking care of themselves means they're paid enough with one job to support themselves and their families. It means they can use their PTO, not just that it's there, but they can actually access it, that they have the emotional support that they need, that their supervisors are trained well, that there's not toxicity in the in the environment, that questions are answered and asked publicly. All of these things that seem pretty basic, but aren't really done as much as they should be. And it's largely due to this cyclical nature of being woefully underpaid, doing very, and it's not just counseling. It's a lot of caretaking jobs. It's teaching, it's home health. It's things where these people are doing arguably the most important work, taking care of other people and they're paid the least and it's exhausting work. And you're giving your all because the people that are going into it are giving their all. And to make it better, (laughs) I think there has to be more money given to these people, given to, there's so many people that leave community mental health for private practice for all the reasons that Wayne mentioned. And then overall, just more time to be able to take care of ourselves. I can't stress enough what just that taking care of the caretakers 
is as important. Very good. And Wayne, uh, to pick up on one of those uh, thoughts then that Maggie was putting out there on money, you, you even helped prompt us to get this panel together in thinking about private payers, public payers, policies, laws, expectations of all kinds. But uh, what what could you see to make it better? I want to bring together what Maggie and Jess talked about. And there's this, I've learned a lot from the generation coming up and it's not uncommon for people in our generation to look at the young people and say, look at them. They won't work themselves to death as some sort of toxic badge of honor that our generation carries. (laughs) Why won't they get burnt out like me? It sucked for me. So it should suck for them. (laughs) And the young people today are like, that's dumb. I'm not doing that. And I respect that. And they stood by that value system, which I also tremendously respect. And I work with my students and I work with my community on it's okay to want to work in a place that you feel fulfills you. It's okay to want to have a specialty. If you want to work with people on doing body health as well as mental health, absolutely, you should be doing that. Uh, If I had a client recently decide that they needed someone who had a very strong opinion on current events, and I couldn't be that person for them. And as I explained to my students, they have the right, they have the obligation to find the therapist who's going to most meet their needs. And as a therapist, as a counselor, I want my counselors to not feel obligated to be everyone's everything. We have to be true to ourselves and we have to really do our best practice. And it's okay as therapists to say, you know what, we need to make a living. The very last agency that I worked in was a, was a union shop. And I really wish that more mental health clinics around the country would unionize. If you see what's going on right now within the world of unions, they are getting higher rates of pay for people. And if I'm a therapist and I'm working 40 hours a week and I'm leaving little bits of me with every person who walks out my door, I shouldn't have to drive for one of the gay gaps in order to pay my rent. Mm -hmm. Because when do I get the time to really be ready to go back to work and to be the best mental health counselor that my client needs when they're sitting in front of me. Mm, Very good. I think that wraps up our conversation in a very uh, powerful way. To all the panelists, I just can't thank you enough for uh, being on the program and uh, sharing your professional and your personal commitment. 
We've been talking with Wayne Brown, a licensed clinical social worker in Buffalo, New York, in private practice and in education. Uh, Jess Maitri, also a counselor in Boise, also training the trainers, uh, providing therapy for the therapists. And Maggie Hallett in Columbus, Ohio, the Senior Director of Workplace Health and Education with the Mental Health of America of Ohio. Thank you all for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's just been terrific. And listeners, until next time, I'm Mark Stenson. Come back again. We'll continue these conversations about what we need to do to elevate our listening, to become better in all areas so that we can do better hearing the patients speak. Thanks for listening to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with best-selling author Mark Stinson. Our podcast is hosted on Captivate.fm, so you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.